This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. There was discussion today at City Council, reasonably evenly split. But one of the guys who was leading, one of the councillors who was seemingly leading the charge to let's not go down this road again, Councillor Sam Marula, who joins me now. Councillor, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, Scotty. Uh, You, from what I could tell from a distance, you were leading the charge rather loudly saying this would be a mistake to to start this whole thing again. Why? Well, Scott, as you know, we're going through an incredible renaissance uh, today uh, as a city. All indicators uh, are second to none in our in our lifetime. And uh, at the end of the day, we have a focus. We have a strategy. We don't need to be distracted. Uh, we need to focus in on those issues that matter, and that's the infrastructure, the hard infrastructure, the roads, the sidewalks, the sewers, which we have a $3 billion infrastructure deficit. We have a $150 million housing deficit. And when you combine all of these challenges that we're faced with, and you look at our strategic plan, opening up the can of worms of discussion for issues that we perhaps want rather than we need. I've always been very divisive. I've always allowed us to lose focus. And with that loss of focus, really is something that's not in our best interest as a city. So what we need to focus in on is we need to focus in on ensuring that we do focus in on those issues that matter. And those issues that matter for us, as I mentioned to you, is not uh, a sporting event. You mentioned the word divisive, and certainly we remember with the whole stadium thing, it was, you know, I talked about it before the break here. I mean, this is something that I don't remember in my time in Hamilton, a topic, uh, an issue that divided people more. Do you think this would have the possibility to do the same thing when it, if, we, if we were to launch into a Commonwealth Games bid that something would come up that would cause those same issues? Scotty, we haven't even furnished, finished the stadium yet. So <laughs> by the time that we're discussing the stadium for the Commonwealth, we're going to probably have to demolish the existing one and build a new one. It will be antiquated. And we just really, at the end of the day, cities need to be in the business of providing services that we need, not that we want. I led the charge in privatizing Hack 5, which was an entertainment, the entertainment facilities. Cities shouldn't be in the business of providing entertainment, although some city council meetings do that. We, <laughs> well done, touche. What we, what we need to focus in on are those those. They come, those basics that the cities, that will make cities great, all the amenities associated with it. We need the private sector to come forward when it comes to those types of entertainment and sporting facilities. And that's why I didn't support the, the stadium bill. It was because I was hoping the Tiger Cats, who are benefiting the most from that particular development, would have come forward with some sort of investment, which they never did. So we can't open up this can of worms. We haven't even healed the wound from Pan Am. Let's move forward. Let's get back to basics and do what we're elected to do, and that's to provide those basics. What about the suggestion that seemed to be made today that, look, if we, if we are in a position where we could be getting a windfall, another windfall, an LRT-esque windfall from the either provincial or federal government or both, we would be foolish to turn our back on that kind of money. If, if Hamilton had to spend $100 million, but we were going to get $900 million, I don't know what the breakdown would be, but we'd be, we'd be foolish not to look at that. that. What do you say to that? Well, what type of facilities are we going to spend $900 million on? Because the operating costs of some of those facilities uh, drain our, the tax uh, revenue. So if we're talking roads, sewers, and sidewalks, I'm all for it. That's why I supported the Road Cycling Championships. And that was referenced uh, in today. But the ironic thing is I was a strong supporter of that. Why? Because what we did was we upgraded our roads, our sidewalks, and our, and our uh, sewers. 
because that's what a the cycling championships required. When you're dealing with these types of velodromes and stadiums, they're not profit generators. They suck the life out of General Levy and the taxpayer. We need to focus on issues that matter to everyday services. And sporting events and facilities just don't do that. And uh, if a private sector wants to come forward, uh, so be it. But we, we're tapped out. We, we, we presently don't have any money to put forward. So even if it's a dollar, we have a $3 billion infrastructure deficit. One dollar is too much to invest in, in something we don't even have a dollar for to invest in. Let me throw the other um, suggestion out there, the other devil's advocate suggestion on this one, and that is what's the harm in asking the city, the staff, to at least investigate this? We don't necessarily have to go in, but where's the harm in having them investigate and see if maybe there's a way we could do this cheap for us that would benefit the city? Very simply put, Scott. If your house right now, if you look at your house and you need a new roof, you need shingles, you need a knee trough, you need a new driveway, your basement is flooding, you don't go out, you don't... uh, buy a pool and a Winnebago with a tiki bar. You focus in on the priorities. And for us to even be looking at potentially spending money we don't have and buying that tiki bar and a pool and a Winnebago is not only irresponsible, it's incompetent. So that being said then, are you surprised the vote was as close as it was today? Are you surprised there are as many councillors who seem to be at least willing to explore this as there are? I would say so, particularly after, after the drastic level of incompetence and disastrous outcome of the Pan Am Games, which is still ongoing. We haven't even dealt with it. The stadium isn't fully completed as we speak. And these guys want to look at spending more money on amenities, sporting amenities. We, we, We have enough to do. We don't need to put new challenges on the table. We need to deal with our existing challenges and continue down the road that's made us very successful, and that is getting back to basics. What about, I mean, now there are, there were three councillors, uh, two councillors and the mayor who were away today. So this was voted down, so it's not going to happen. But it comes back before council, I believe, next week. Yep. I think it's on the 14th. Right. Your perspective on this, I mean, do you think, think this is going to be dead or are you sitting there going, oh man, this I, I'm worried that this thing is going to gain new life? No, well, at the end of the day, I, I have faith in my fellow colleagues to make decisions that are in the best interest of the residents and pursuing this at this point is not in the best interest of the city or the residents. So I, I, I trust that they'll make the right decision. You're confident of that? I trust they'll make the right decision. <laughs> because, because I say the, the mayor did seem to be somewhat, well, somewhat. One vote. They need, they need two. I so. understand that. I don't know if you're even allowed to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How much politicking or how much arm twisting or whatever word you want to use would go on behind the scenes before that meeting to try and encourage, in case one of those other councillors, and I don't know where they stand, but if in case one of them or two of them were interested, how much goes on to try and discuss this beforehand, encourage them not to go down this road? Not from my end. I'd probably happening on the other end, though. <laughs> I can assure you of that. But not, I've never done that. Anyone that knows me, I do my business openly, transparently, and that's the council floor. It is, uh, it is certainly, uh, we will be watching because this thing, uh, I, one way or another, if this thing remains really, really close, this is this, uh, boy, this could be an interesting fall for, uh, for council. Uh, it will be anyway, but with this one especially. Sam Marula, I'll let you get back to what you're doing. I know you're busy, but thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Take care, Scotty. That is, um, so there, I mean, there's, there's the one side of it. We, we can't afford anything. So let's not even play around with the idea. Let's not even 
tinker around the edges with the idea because we can't afford it regardless. There is no money. We don't have money. And I'll be honest with you on this case, and you've heard me if you've been listening to the show, I am not in favor. I'm a sports guy. I love sports. I'm not lobbying for the Commonwealth Games to come here, largely for many of the reasons that Councillor Marula just said, but also because if I am going to be consistent, and I try to be consistent, I've also argued for a long time here, and again, if you're a regular listener, you know I've said this, and some of you have agreed with me, and some of you have disagreed with me. City, not just city people, pardon me, politicians, generally politicians, what they love to do Almost all of them, almost all of them, they love to cut ribbons at new facilities. They don't like to cut ribbons or stand there for a road repair, for a bridge repair. They like to build new stuff and they like to get a brass plaque on the wall that says, Councillor so-and-so, MPP so-and-so, MP so-and-so, Minister so-and-so were behind this thing. The problem with that, while those things may serve us well, the problem with that is if using the example, if you own a house, if you own a home, you know what I'm going to be talking about next. If you buy a house and let's say in Hamilton these days, let's say you spend $350,000 on a house. That is your capital outlay, but that's not the full extent of what you pay for the house because once you own the house, as Councillor Marula just said, you got to pay for a roof, you got to pay for repairs, you got to pay bills, you got to pay taxes, you've got to pay heating, you got to pay your cable, you've got to pay your internet, you got to pay your phone. You've got all these things. You have to paint it, you have to furnish it. Once we get these facilities, let's say that the provincial and the federal government came in with $800 million and we were on the hook for two hundred. Once we inherit the swimming pool, the X, the Y, whatever it is, we then have to pay to keep it up and we don't have the money to do that to begin with. And so while I am loath to say, no, we don't want more sports facilities, of course, you know, we should, we should want a better quality of life. We should want better facilities, but this is the kind of thing I look at and I go, I, I, I got to say I'm with Councilor Marula on this one. I really am. I just, I just can't see how this could possibly work for this city right now. Now, as I said off the top, we tried to give fair time tonight. Councillor Terry Whitehead was supposed to be on tonight. We can't reach him. He's not uh, picking up his phone. I wanted to hear from someone who had expressed an interest in being part of this thing. We have called 10 times at least and have not got any answer. So if you are in favor of the Commonwealth Games and you say we're being unfair, we have tried. You can call Councillor Terry Whitehead at his office and ask him if you have questions. We were not able to reach him tonight, unfortunately. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever gotten the opportunity to walk a red carpet, a real red carpet. I mean, with celebrities and paparazzi and all that kind of stuff. I've never done it. I'm quite positive that I never will do it. I don't know too many people who have done it, but my next guest is going to be, and I don't know if he's ever done it before, to be honest with you, but on Saturday, his new movie called The Carter Effect, all about how Vince Carter has changed Canada and turned us into a basketball nation. Basketball was invented by a Canadian, 
But Vince Carter really took that, and we have lots of people now, lots of Canadians in the NBA, in NCAA basketball, and many of them point to Vince Carter arriving in Toronto as the moment, the thing that inspired them. His new documentary, The Carter Effect, as I say, premieres Saturday at the Princess of Wales Theatre, the biggest venue in the Toronto International Film Festival, the prestigious Toronto International Film Festival. Sean Menard is a Sir Alan McNabb grad. He's a Hamilton guy, and he is the person who put this whole thing together. He joins me now. Sean, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. I like the love about me being uh, from Hamilton. Got to make sure we, we, pump, we pump that, because I got my mom and my grandma listening from the city. Well, uh, and hello to your mom, who I bumped into last week, as a matter of fact, and a uh, lovely lady. So hello, Mrs. Menard. Um, have you ever walked a red carpet before? I have not. This will be, this will be a first. So have you practiced your walk and your pose so you have the right uh, the right paparazzi shot so Sean looks all you know proper when the when the flash bulbs are going off? I I don't think I think the the paparazzi and the flash bulbs will be going off for, for other people, Scott, not so much me. Well, because there are there are a few uh, large name NBA stars, including I believe Vince Carter is actually going to be here for this, is he not? Yes. Okay, so I mean there there are people, but come on. You are the man who pulled this whole thing together. Surely there will be a frame or two of Sean Menard as he comes in. I, I, if only yeah, by your mother. That's exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Tell me how this comes to be. Like, First of all, before we get into the whole documentary side of thing, I explained sort of in about 20 seconds there why Vince Carter matters here. But when did you realized that Vince Carter mattered more than other athletes? Because lots of big-name athletes have played in Toronto, in this area. Lots of people have had stellar careers around here. How did you decide or come to the realization that Vince Carter was a little bit different? Um, I think, first of all, you could take the way that he plays the game uh, or, or played in those early Raptors years. I mean, he did things in a way... I, I always say if he was a three-point shooter or a, a fundamental player in the post, I don't think it would have um, had this type of effect, really. Um, his high flying, his dunking style, the way that he carried himself um, after he would do these, just the energy and enthusiasm he had towards the game was infectious, and it took – you had a lot of people with low basketball IQ. I put myself in that category back during those, those days when he first came up with the Raptors, and it was easy for us to identify what was truly amazing – by just you know watching how he played the game. It was different than everyone else. It was like uh, his mother would say, uh, when I interviewed her for the film, she would say with Vince it was like ballet in the air. Um, and so for me, I guess when I kind of noticed the tipping point, um, it was simply, honestly, it was just watching the NBA draft not too long ago and seeing the first overall pick. Um, maybe even a little bit before that, uh, seeing a, uh, a player named Tristan Thompson plays with the Cleveland Cavaliers get drafted, uh, I believe fourth overall that year. And, and we never had a Canadian in the top 10, I believe before that. So then, you know, a couple years later, we have number one overall two years in a row and they're both from Toronto. And in interviews, they're both citing Vince Carter was the player that inspired them. So all these many years later, and that's the impressionable age, right, Scott, you see, you know, sure when you were a kid and, and you were watching something at that age, um, it just has such a profound effect on you than, than anything I'm watching now as, as an adult. Um, so that was kind of, you know, I'm taking note of all this, and, and, and I guess that's, for me, the combination of how Vince played and all these years later 
is how I kind of noticed the, the impact. And so is it easy then to go out and just put together, I mean, easy relatively speaking, but is it easy to go out then and just say, hey, here's a great idea, here's a documentary, I'm going to make it, and everyone's going to line up on the red carpet and fill the Princess of Wales Theatre. I mean, it, Absolutely, that's how you draw it up. That, that's, well, I have no, I, no doubt that's how you draw it up. I'm just, there's lots of plays that get drawn up, but all of a sudden you have to run out of the pocket and change things on the fly, uh, mixing my sports metaphors completely here. But no, I, I mean, is it... Does it become easy because you have a good idea to get a film made then? Um, I think that helps. I think a track record. Um, I mean, for this particular project, I had just finished my first feature length. When I say feature length, you know, typically that's anything 60 minutes and over. Uh, it was called Fight Mom, but a female MMA fighter who eventually made it to the UFC. And that got the attention of the company Uninterrupted of course, is, is run and operated by Maverick Carter and LeBron James. And from there, um, they basically, you know, they really enjoyed Fight Mom. It became an uninterrupted production, and they said, what else do you have kind of going on? And, and my agent had sent them a bunch of one-page, just little concepts um, of, of different documentaries in the sports world. And the one that caught their eye that they really kind of gravitated towards was the Carter Effect, which is surprising because that's a – a very Toronto-centric, Canadian-friendly subject matter. And now you have these Americans, uh, you know, being taken by and wanting to uh, make something like that. Did LeBron James... Now, I don't know if you talked specifically to LeBron James. I think you interviewed him in the movie, correct? No, he's not interviewed. You're not? Okay. Have you had any conversation? Like, was there a... If he's going to get behind this, if his company is going to get behind this... Did, does Vince Carter mean anything to a guy like LeBron James? If they're going to back it, does that suggest that he actually, that, that Vince Carter is more than just a guy? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they, you know, I say they, I mean, his, his childhood friend, Maverick Carter, who, who runs more of the day-to-day operations for Uninterrupted. And no relation uh, to Vince. No, no relation to Vince, correct. Um, him, him and LeBron were in high school when Vince was, was just on the scene uh, for the Raptors. So, I mean, obviously, uh, LeBron was regarded as one of the greatest. I mean, at, even from that age and being in high school, I think he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 14 or 15. Yeah, yeah, the next right. one. So, yeah, exactly, the next one they, they coined him. So, um, yeah, I mean, those guys, I mean, I think any young basketball player, basketball player of that generation or era, they'll all kind of tell you about, I mean, how can you, I mean, he, he, just the way that he did things was just, it was on another level. They would always say, you know, he was kind of the night, the next Michael Jordan, um, Vince Carter, of course, right? And just the way that he, you know, flew above the rim and, and had a highlight almost every night. So Sean Menard is a filmmaker, as I say, went to Sir Alan McNabby's from Hamilton, lives in Toronto now, uh, has done some great work. And I would, again, if, if people never saw the documentary he did on the Montreal Expos, the 94 team when they got back together at Olympic Stadium before a Jays ex, uh, preseason game, uh, they should. It's fantastic. I loved it. Uh, the piece you did with Connor McDavid before he became a pro, excellent work. But those things are... Hey, how about my um, and McMaster fight mom? No, and fight mom and McMaster right? oh, football. Yeah, absolutely. I did one on Mac football, but those things are fight mom not so much, but a lot of them are regional. So how does Sean Menard call up Charles Oakley, 
Steve Nash, David Stern, the former commissioner of the NBA, all these people who are in your movie talking about Vince Carter. How do you get these people to sit down and do an interview? Because nothing personal against you, no slight against you, but I can't believe that any of these people had heard your name before. And if you just call them up on the phone, how do you get them? How do you convince them that they want to be in your movie? Well, I I mean, the process before when I did those other films, I I would I was just I would do exactly what you said. I would just call them up. I'd call up the teams. Uh, there's usually a PR, and I'd have luck that way. But with some of these guys, they're retired. Um, they don't necessarily have to do media. In fact, a lot of them haven't and kind of stopped. Rightfully so. I understand it. You know, they're not getting paid for this. They're you know they're living the the retired life. So for me, it was a heck of a lot easier working with Uninterrupted because now you have. Uh, a production company with with clout and a name behind it. Uh, so I, I worked with the producer over there named Aaron Phillips, and and Aaron would always say to me, you know, what do you need and what do you got? We'll you know we'll we'll facilitate that for you. And I would drop names, and they would go out and they'd say, okay, how about uh, Tracy McGrady in L.A.? We'll have Steve Nash earlier that day because he's in L.A. and and away you go. And and I mean, we interviewed close to 40 people for this film, so. In that sense, it, it was like a dream for me because I, before this project, it's not only was I putting my own money behind my work, but I was also having to go out and hustle and, and get every name and interview in, in, in this piece. Not to say that there wasn't a lot of hustle for this film, but I mean, it was just, I just, I just noted that it was, it's just a little bit different when those people reach out as opposed to Chaminade from Hamilton. Well, what I found really funny, and, and uh, I did a piece. It's in the. It's online today. It'll be in the paper tomorrow. People can read it. But what what I found really funny is you did this. Now this is called the Carter Effect. It's about Vince Carter, and you launched into this whole thing and did pretty much all the interviews with everyone else, without lining up anything with Vince Carter. Just guessing that down the road somehow you were going to get this guy. Um, is guessing that not and, kind of hoping? I mean, and, and hoping. But is that not kind of an incredibly high-risk, tightrope act that you're doing? Because this would seem to be... You could have probably pulled this thing together with Vince Carter being the ethereal mystery mist that's just behind this whole thing. But it would seem to be kind of an obvious omission if he doesn't appear in this. Like, he really was not in favor of you doing it. That would have been maybe the impression you got. How do you make sure at the end of this that you actually get him to come on? Well, I think you just have to take the approach of, of making it so good they can't ignore you is, is a nice saying that I that I often use. And, and for me, I just thought if I get every single person in his life, uh, past teammates, his mom, um, he used to own a club up here in Toronto, get, get his, um, uh, uh, the per, his business partner he used to own the club with, which were still very close friends. Um, and, and it was also kind of purposeful. I wanted to make sure that Vince was the very last person that I interviewed. Uh, in my films, I don't use any voiceover. Uh, there's no narration other than uh, you don't hear my voice when I'm asking the questions. The entire narrative is taken through what these uh, athletes and individuals are saying to me through an interview. So I wanted to, to kind of gather as much as I could of the whole story, and then once I kind of made the decisions of what I was going to do and tell and which kind of way it was going to go, um, then I thought, okay, now, now I'll interview Vince. But I mean, it's definitely, um, extremely risky approach. Usually you line that up probably before, but it was just based on, 
uh, you know, we're, we're shooting right in the second half. We started this film, principal photography, they call it, really end of January, early February. So it's the second half of the season. So it's very difficult to line these guys up because as the season goes on, they're more and more focused on on the standings. And, and at, at that time, Vince was competing for a playoff spot with Memphis. So, I, I mean, these type of long-form interviews, they call them, usually occur in the first half of the NBA season. So this was one of those where you just plow ahead, and, and I, I equate it to driving at night. I've got the headlights on, and I can see just enough to get me where I need to go. Um, I don't necessarily need to see the whole way. All right, let me ask you a couple broad questions about documentary filmmaking because one of the things that is um, that I find amazing is that if you had been a documentary filmmaker 20 years ago, that would have essentially assured that if you were at a party somewhere, nobody would have spoken to you. Uh, it was the, the, you know, times have changed documentary filmmaking now with Ken Burns and then with the 30 for 30 series with ESPN and stuff, it has become not just an interesting form, but it's become really, really, really good. You can make, there are stuff that is really, really excellent. And now you, you know, it's really become a a thing, but you can, you can say I'm a rock star now, Scott. You are, you are absolutely a rock star, Sean Menard. Uh, okay. So. What I don't understand, though, about how these things are made, and I, I'm assuming some other people don't either, you do all these interviews. Do you actually have a storyboard built ahead of time, or do you have to do all these interviews, and then based on what the guys say, you put the story together? Like, Oh, you're asking for the secret sauce now. I am asking, because if this was a, a fictional movie, the whole thing, it's a script. But here, you have no idea what anyone's going to say. So is it all put together afterwards, or do you have an idea where it's going to go? I think it's it's definitely a hybrid. I don't think you can sit down and, and predict exactly the way the story is going to go. And I think that's the beauty of making documentaries. Uh, in, in a scripted world, I, I feel you're, you're trying to accomplish something that's almost set in stone, right? You're, you're, you're taking piece, pages of the script and trying to recreate that. Uh, what I really love about making documentaries is it's very organic. It's very, you kind of just go with the flow when I'm having a conversation with someone. And that's typically what I try and do instead of having an interview. If they start leading me down a path that I really had no idea existed, I, I couldn't have found that out through research or, or it starts to become very interesting, then I want to explore on that. And then that might end up um, leading me to an area that I didn't expect that was far more interesting than I had this one set area that I think is going to be great for the story. And then it just, for some reason, you just don't either get the sound bites or in that the, the person that I'm interviewing doesn't say it in the right way, or it's just not that interesting as much as I thought it was going to be. But what if somebody so, says something to you? So you've talked to Steve Nash. I mean, I'm just picking a name out of the blue here. You've talked to Steve Nash. Now you go to talk to Charles Oakley and Oakley tells you something that either count contradicts what Nash says, or is something that you would have liked to ask Nash again, but you've only had one crack at these people. Can you go back and check this stuff with no. them again? No, you only got one shot. You got one shot and you really only have, uh, I mean, a very finite amount of time with them. So you've got to be prepared and you've got to be able to be, I mean, my advantage is that I'm an editor too. So I edit the film. So when I'm listening to somebody talking to me, I'm almost editing as I go in a very rough sense. So it allows me, if, if he didn't say it in the right way or the way that I know I, I can't use, on the, on the spot, I've got to be pretty quick to be able to re-ask the question 
or ask it in a different way or get to it much later in the interview just so that I have it. And when you hear a guy give you a quote, do you instantly recognize that's the what that's a quote I'm using in the in the movie? Can you tell as soon as he says it? Absolutely. That's in there. Absolutely. Oh yeah, and you you feel it, but I mean um, you can, yeah, you totally, even talking with, um, I had a great cinematographer, Thomas Couric on this project and, you know, after each interview we would, you know, talk amongst ourselves and, and, and the crew and, and he would always say, you know, he would point to a specific line. Oh, that's, that's going to be in the film or that will be in the trailer. Is this, uh, we only have a minute or so left here. You've talked to other documentary filmmakers. Is is the way you do it, and you do it better than most of them. I got to tell you right off the bat, and I'm not just blowing smoke. You really, you, your work is excellent. But do you work? Do, do you guys all kind of work the same way? Is it all? No, I, I to be honest with you, I'm not too sure the process for other because I, I really don't work with other documentary filmmakers, um, so I don't really know. I just, I just get from what I'm either being told from when I'm working with other crew members or from the athletes or the people that I'm interviewing. Uh, Personally, I get a sense that um, I'm a lot quicker than a lot of them in, in the sense that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty prepared and, and conscious of their time, so I try and be quick. And, and I, listen, I understand this film's 60 minutes. I'm interviewing 40 people. How long can their talking points really get in the film? So there's no sense. I mean, I'm not going to spend an hour with each person. It's just a waste of time. I mean, it gives you loads of options in the editing room, but this film essentially, in order to, for us to submit it to the Toronto International Film Festival, I needed to cut it in three weeks. Most people spend on this length of, of content about three months, so there wasn't the luxury of, of spending that time. I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question properly, but I, I can't help but feel my process is a little bit different. I want, I want a copy of the 17-hour director's cut. <laughs> The full interviews from every single one of these guys and see where they go. Um, look, it is, it, is, uh, it is great work. And, and uh, I mean, Sean's stuff, as I say, your, your work has been terrific in the past. And, and this one, the fact that it's completely sold out for your opening night, for your premiere, and all the other shows that you're doing are sold out pretty much or close to it, if not fully sold out. And that it's StubHub, a $30 ticket is going for 225 bucks. says something about how anticipated this is. I do have to ask... Uh, and I've never done this before because I don't do entertainment shows. Um, but I'm told I'm apparently supposed to say, who will you be wearing on the red carpet? Oh, it's an excellent question, Scott. This year, uh, for my red carpet debut, I'll be wearing my King and Bay. A couple, uh, young gentlemen that started their own clothing, uh, custom suit attire over, oh. uh, downtown Toronto. So you really do have a name of something that you will be wearing. It's not just my closet. <laughs> <laughs> that would be me. Whatever is clean. That's what I'm wearing. I, well, I got. I'm on stage right with um, with Drake. He's a, he's an executive producer of this project, and and Vince Carter. Uh, I've got to kind of um, hold my own, right? I can't just be. I can't be wearing my closet uh, up on for something this big. That, that's probably true. That's probably true. Although, um, you know, as long as it's not a, a wallet size competition, you're going to be fine. Exactly. I mean, Drake, Drake has a few bucks, I'm told. I've never quite understood why, but that, you don't have to answer that question. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but that's, you know. Uh, Sean Menard, the movie is called The Carter Effect. It is showing at the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, oh, before I let you go, w- eventually, will other people get to see it? Will this, is the idea that this is going to be purchased and become a 30 for 30 or something like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not so sh- sure about a 30 for 30. But or I mean, something. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, I refer to it, it's definitely a free agent, and this festival is an opportunity for potential buyers to come in, and I, I think it's very safe to say that it will end up on a platform of some type in, a, in an area where lots of people will, sit, will see it. I, just don't, I don't know when that will occur, and I think that's why the hype is, you know, people like to see something before the rest of the public get to see it. So I think that's what's kind of created this the buzz around this particular project at, at, at the, the film festival here in Toronto. Well, once upon a time, you told me that your goal was to do a 30 for 30 before you were 30. Now you're just a little bit past that, but I am, I will put money down that there will be a day that we will see a Sean Bernard production on a 30 for 30. I'm, I'm very confident of that. Um, whether it's this one or whether it's the next one or the one after, I don't know, but it'll happen. I mean, we're, uh, Yes, stay tuned to that. I'm, I'm uh, meeting with those guys in New York uh, very soon, actually. Uh, Is that right? End of the month, yeah. yeah. It will be the uh, the 30 for 30 on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I'm sure it'll be a huge hit. They just did a mic and mic or whatever it's called in New York. So, you know, it's gotta be, uh, there's got to be an appetite for that stuff. <laughs> I, I, especially what you're doing two hours a, a night, I hear now. Oh yeah, no, no, no. It's it's. When you said you're in the second, I'm assuming two hours. Is there more hours? You said you're in. No, the no, no. It's two hours. This, I mean, so for you, it's only an hour. I mean, it's only half the work. Yeah, you're putting in a lot of a lot yeah. of content time. Sean Menard, we're not going to keep stroking each other here. It's um, it's getting ugly. Uh, Sean Menard. A director, you can see him at the Toronto International Film Festival. Keep an eye for him. You'll see pictures probably online. He will be on the red carpet. Uh, Sean, excellent job. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Congratulations. Scott, as always, you know I got time for, for the hammer. And, and it was a side note, love seeing the podcast get in the wind column. Uh, you know what? You could you could almost do a documentary on that, but that's a topic for another day. Thanks, Sean. Cheers. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from seven to nine on AM nine hundred CHML. Glenn Grunwald is now the athletics director at McMaster University. He was, however, the general manager of the Toronto Raptors when all this happened and when Vince Carter became a Raptor and as the story goes, when basketball was forever changed in Canada. Glenn joins me now. Glenn, how are you tonight? Great, Scott. Uh, interesting story from Sean there. Great to see a Hamilton guy making such great progress in his uh, video career. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it sounds like everything we've heard is this is a movie that they, they tickets were sold out before they even went on sale, basically. There's so much interest in this movie right now. Let's go back to that, because this was the draft of 1998. If I'm correct, you were going into your second year as general manager, correct? Yeah, after a pretty disastrous uh, first year. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so the team you inherited was not great. You Was it you who drafted Tracy McGrady the year before then? Was that your call? No, that was Isaiah. And, you know, the, the Raptors have drafted pretty well. You know, they had uh, Damon Stoudemire, the rookie of the year, the first year, and then uh, Marcus Camby, who had a very good career, and then Tracy McGrady, now a Hall of Famer, followed by Vince Carter. Well, when was it in when you took over, or even before you took over then as general manager, when did you first decide or come to some kind of conclusion that Vince Carter was your guy? Well, I had scouted him during the year uh, at a couple, you know, university games down there in North Carolina, and, uh, you know, he looked great, And uh, but when it was when he came in for his visit, because, the, the, because as you mentioned, the Raptors weren't very good, and it was difficult to get players that even were going to be drafted to come and visit and work out and get interviewed and do the due diligence that you need to do to make the right decision, but but Vince uh, entered the draft late, uh, and he had hired a non-basketball agent, Tank Black, who was primarily a football agent. So, so they came to uh, visit us in Toronto, and when Vince came in, he just struck me that his personality 
but mostly his incredible athleticism and much better skill level than he was given credit for really shocked me in his workout. So it was uh, from then on, I just couldn't think of anyone else but Vince Carter in that draft. The fact was, because of the situation in Toronto, were you looking, you were obviously looking for a good player, but were you also, in, as a general manager, are you also looking for someone, if you can find the package that's going to get eyeballs? Because the Raptors were not the Toronto Maple Leafs at the time. They're not the Jays struggling to get attention. Is that part of the package you're looking for, or is it only the best player regardless, even if he's boring? Let's just get the best player. Well, primarily the best player because winning is the best best thing, and and if he can do it with the sort of pizzazz and and incredible athleticism that uh, Vince had, so much the better. But you're trying to build a winning team. You're not going to get credit for for uh, points. It's not gymnastics uh, in the NBA. Okay, so so as you're watching him, then as as he works out, did you think this is a guy that can be a franchise player, or did you think this is a guy who can be a really good player? I thought he could be a great player just because of his uh, his his athleticism. I I don't know if you remember, but uh, he was being compared to this is for basketball trivia bus Harold Miner, which was a player that was drafted out of USC and was a, another incredible athlete, but didn't quite make it in the NBA just because he didn't have the intellect or the skill level or the shooting ability that that Vince wound up having. So so when we drafted him, there was some some criticism perhaps or some concern that. You know, is this another Harold Miner, another great athlete, but who can't uh, really make it in the NBA? So, you know, but I was I was pretty sure that he could do it just because of again his shooting ability and the skill level and his personality. So once you had set your mind that this was going to be your guy, are there, for lack of a better word, spy games among general managers in the league? Do you try to set smoke screens and divert people and make them think you're taking someone else? Is there a lot of that stuff to try and make sure they don't take your guy? Oh, yeah, all, all the time, right? So you're uh, putting out uh, misinformation and you're getting rumors. And uh, and, and really, th- those rumors and that misinformation work to our benefit, to, to our slight benefit in Toronto during that draft because Golden State, uh, who drafted right behind us, uh, they wanted to draft uh, Vince's college teammate, Antoine Jameson, and they were afraid that we were going to draft Antoine Jameson first and then trade him to Dallas uh, and let Dallas uh, draft Vince Carter in the seventh position. So I don't know if that made any sense or not, but uh, it worked out that, that Golden State wanted to make sure that we didn't draft Antoine Jameson, so they did that little trade where we swapped picks right after the draft. But did they, was that, that was arranged before the draft. Yes, it was arranged immediately before the draft. Not not uh, that that afternoon, I believe, is when it when it came up, came down. Okay, but you still you you had the fifth pick, fifth pick of that draft, right? Right. Fifth. Right. So, are you at that point? Are you thinking to yourself, "We're going to get our guy," or are you looking at the players who are available? Because it was not it's not a draft that is exactly when you look at it now that was loaded with all stars. As it turns out, were you sitting there going, "Man, there's no chance we're going to land him," or are you thinking, "No, no, no one's going to touch him." Well, because, uh, you know, I think what happened was North Carolina didn't want to lose both, North University of North Carolina didn't want to lose both Antoine Jameson and Vince Carter that year. And, and a- Antoine Jameson was sort of viewed as a more mature player, perhaps. And uh, the coach at the time, Dean Smith, really was encouraging and trying to discourage uh, 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 Vince from entering the draft. So, you know, there may have been some some negative stuff put out a little bit by North Carolina that I think hurt his his draft status a little bit and, and may have allowed us to, to get him uh, at that position. But it was a pretty good draft, too, by the way. A- after Vince, 
Paul Pierce and Dirk Nowitzki were both yep. drafted. No, that's so, true. So, uh, yeah, so it, it, the top of the draft wasn't as strong as sort of the middle and last part of that draft. But as you sit down, so for a general manager, if you've got your eye on a guy and you really think that he is the guy and you said you believed he could be a great player, do you sleep the night before a draft or are you just lying in bed going, thinking through every possibility and thinking, oh, you know what, our guy's going to be gone. It's just that's the way it goes. Our guy's going to be gone. <laughs> well, you have a lot of information. So you, I think we were fairly comfortable that Vince was going to be there at five. Uh, just because, you know, you do a lot of mock drafts, you talk to a lot of other teams, the agents are always working the phones. So you're picking up information and you have your your projected uh, draft rankings. And, and those generally turn out to be pretty accurate. Every once in a while you get a shocker and, and, and it'll throw the draft off. But you're, you're pretty good, in, at least we've had pretty good information in terms of, of what the, how the draft is going to unfold and who's going to get drafted where. But you definitely want to keep your top pick quiet as best you can and make sure that the teams don't really understand and know what you, what your draft rankings are just so you make sure that you get the players that you do want. If he had been called, if you'd been surprised in one of the teams ahead of you, which was the Clippers, the Vancouver Grizzlies, Denver Nuggets, uh, if you had been surprised, who was your backup? Who was gonna? Who were the Raptors going to take? Who was going to be the Raptor if Vince Carter wasn't available? I don't recall exactly, but I know our coach at the time, Butch Carter, really wanted us to draft Robert Tractor Trailer, who was a, uh, you know, uh, big big guy. We needed big guys, and you know, it was understandable that you, you might want a player like that. Unfortunately, he didn't have that great of a, a, an NBA career. So uh, I hope we wanted to draft a Robert Tractor Trailer. <laughs> <laughs> he but, went uh, next. He went next. Uh, did he go next? Yeah, he went right after Vince. Okay, yeah, okay, that's right. So, yeah, so it was. Uh, you know that was a possibility, uh, I guess, but uh, I, I, frankly, I don't recall where I was after Vince. I was Vince was my guy, and, and I'm just glad it worked out. When did you begin to realize? How long after Vince actually arrived in Toronto? Because, the, as I say, the story all is that because of what happened, he changed basketball. He turned kids on. We've seen so many kids now say they go to the NBA or the NCAA because they fell in love with basketball when he was playing. When did you realize that you were right? that this guy actually was what you thought he was? Oh, early on. Uh, early on, and in in, uh, the, his first year was a lockout-shortened year, right? It was, uh, I think we started playing in December or January. I don't remember exactly, but uh, I think we played uh, a Celtics team, and, uh, you know, it was against Paul Pierce, and he just totally outplayed Paul Pierce in that first game. And, uh, uh, and just... You know, I just could just see it. You know, you could just tell the guy was incredibly talented, incredibly smart, highly skilled, and uh, was just going to do great things. That said, I have to believe, and I mean, you you were around. I, I have to believe that it was the dunk contest that entirely changed things. That he went from being a great player well, to a. That's when he became a phenomenon. Right. Okay. So right. I've I've been fortunate in my NBA career to be part of two phenomenas: Vin Sanity and Lynn Sanity. Jeremy Lynn. <laughs> yeah. Of York. course. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the, the chemistry that has to come together for those things to happen, uh, is, you know, I don't, I don't have any formula for that, but uh, it is pretty amazing when it happens, when someone catches the, 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 the fantasies of all these sports fans and the charisma and the storyline, it, it was unbelievable. Yeah, so I was in San Francisco or Oakland when, when that dunk contest happened, and it was just electric. It was, you know, I... I had long tired of dunk contests, but uh, watching Vince in that uh, show, it was 
it was astounding and the electricity in the building and the reaction from the fans across the world uh, that's really what turned him into a phenomenon you're right your problem is with Vince Sanity and Lynn Sanity you just ran out of guys whose name rhymed with that <laughs> if you could have found a few more guys um, I'm looking for, for Larry Wynn next, <laughs> all right? but you traveled with the team so when you would pull into other other cities then with him after that dunk contest it, it must have been the Vince Carter show always Oh yeah, yeah. The the fans were waiting for us, whatever hour t- and time we arrived at the hotel or the airport. And uh, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, he was uh, uh, a phenomenon. And all the celebrities. I remember Vince had us fantasy camp for adults in Toronto, and we'd have you know Denzel Washington show up for it, and it was pretty amazing. So if if Sean Menard, who and again this piece that he's done on the Carter effect, and all the people who have written about this, if they're all right. And if, in fact, Vince Carter was the guy that really changed basketball, uh, you uh, every time I've talked to you, everything I know about you, are not a prideful man. You're not a guy who puffs out your chest. But you must take some measure of pride in your role then in how basketball was affected by all this and how the game has grown in this country by your decision. You, you were right. You picked the right guy, and he made that kind of impact. Yeah, no, it's uh, you know it was uh, it was uh, it worked out pretty well, and I'm happy I've been part of the NBA. I'm, I'm part of uh, uh, of the Vince Carter era, but I'm also part of being bringing the NBA to Canada because I think Vince was certainly the headliner that that and he has contributed to the growth of basketball. But I but I also think it's just the NBA being here too. Well, what what do you say to people when they say that? You know, Glenn, hey, you know what? You were a big part of the reason why all these guys are now in the pros. What do you say to that? <laughs> I don't say much because people don't really say that to me. <laughs> well, I mean, do you think that we have an Andrew Wiggins and a Tyler Ennis and a Jamal Murray and a Corey Joseph and a Rowan Barrett and a Tristan Thompson and I could go on Kelly Olynyk and Nick Stauskas and two world-class Olympic national teams and junior national teams. Do we have all these things without Vince Carter in your mind? Yeah, maybe not. And, and I think you know, basketball hotbeds, uh, places in North America or the world where, where we're producing NBA players, it, it, not, Toronto is one of them now. And you know, there's Seattle, there's Washington, D.C. area. Not New York, not so much even Chicago anymore, but, but there's these areas that develop because of the culture and, and the role models that exist in these areas. And I think Vince is the role model that a lot of these current NBA players uh, uh, built their careers upon, and, and now that'll hopefully be you know, continuing as, as, as other players follow in, in, in those current players' footprints. I, I, I do wonder... Uh, two picks before you guys, or three picks, but well, two, three picks before you guys, uh, Vancouver Grizzlies. If they had not taken Mike Bibby and took Vince Carter, you you wonder if they may actually still have a team there. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I, I think there were some fundamental issues in the demographics and the corporate support in Vancouver that was also problematic. But but yeah, right, Vince would have definitely helped probably more than Mr. Bibby. It is uh, it is a terrific story, and you uh, you play a big part in this. Before we let you go, I do have to ask: you do have another job now uh, as athletics director for McMaster. Uh, you guys have a rather significant game coming up this weekend. Yeah, the number four ranked uh, Western Mustangs and uh, those ugly purple uniforms <laughs> uh, come to visit us at one o'clock Saturday at Ron Joyce Stadium, and hopefully we can get a great crowd to cheer on our, I think number seven ranked. 
uh, in the nation, McMaster Marauders football team. I find it a little bit ironic that a guy who used to be the GM of the Raptors is criticizing ugly purple uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the Raptors changed their colors to red and black and white now, I guess, because purple is what it is. It is what it is. Glenn Grunwald, uh, it's a terrific story. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's impre- it's, I don't know what the word is. It's, um, it, it's a remarkable bit that you have had to do with this, the, the, the piece that you've had in, in basketball growing in this country. I don't think it can be overlooked. And, uh, and uh, you know what, I'm sure, as you say, many people may not say it to you, but uh, you know, it's, uh, it's worth pointing out. You had a huge role in all these guys now being in the league. So well, congratulations for that. Glenn Grunwald, Athletics Director of McMaster University. Um, by the way, in case anyone's wondering, the picks before Vince Carter, Michael Olawakandi, that was a bomb. Mike Bibby, mm, didn't work out so well there. Rafe LaFriends, mm. then Antoine Jameson was taken by the Raptors and traded to Golden State for Vince Carter. Remember, they didn't draft Vince Carter, they traded for Vince Carter. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.